0: their understanding or their impression of the Old Testament law. I'm sure we get an interesting cross-section of of views. From a lack of any real knowledge to sheer indifference, there'd be those who would see the law as being pointless and not important. Others would comment about the law being superseded by Christ and many would refer to the wonderful truth that all of us as Christians hold dear from uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We're justified, justified by faith, not the law, not works. And I often think our understanding of the law is, is kind of coloured to some degree by our reading and studying of the Gospels. Because it's here that we see Jesus rally against the rulers, the scribes, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law really throughout his ministry. I'd like to take a bit of artistic licence with you just for a few minutes this morning. What do you think might happen if our pastors sat down and wrote a list of rules and expectations based on their own personal experience and their own personal likes of how we as a church ought to live? Now, I I have the utmost respect for our pastors. We are brothers in Christ. We serve together. But I wonder what it might look like if they were free to interpret biblical principles as they liked, without the constraints of sound doctrine or hearts committed to the service of God's people. I wonder what it might look like. Well, it could be that if you are a rabid footy supporter, you'd have to support this mob. <laughs> if you want to wag church for a week, perhaps the only excuse for doing so is to go surfing. If you want to ride a motorcycle, perhaps there's a preferred brand. (laughs) And if you'd really desire to have a pastoral visit, then you better make sure the coffee's of high quality and a couple of Tim Tams wouldn't go astray too. And please, for the sake of our New, New Zealand brothers and sisters, when and if Australia ever beats New Zealand don't bang on about it because it's really frustrating because we really aren't at all interested anyway. <laughs> we only seem to mention it when Australia beats New Zealand. You see, the religious leaders of Jesus' day burdened the people with man's interpretation of the law, condemning most of the people to the same spiritual blindness that they themselves felt, they themselves suffered from. And Jesus castigates them for their hypocrisy, their hard-heartedness, their burdens in interpretation and indeed their lack of power in teaching the scriptures, including the law. And as a result, I think sometimes there's a, there's a reluctance for us to spend too much time thinking about the subject. Yet Jesus himself said he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfil it. There's enough written about the law and clarifying its true purpose for us as Christians in the New Testament that we really ought to take note. Indeed, we're aware that this entire epistle of Galatians we are studying was written to refute those who would argue that keeping the law was an adjunct to salvation. Salvation is through Christ and keeping the law, or at least the parts that we would like to see people keep, that we would like to see people follow. A working knowledge of the law and what it reveals about God and man is helpful in appreciating the mighty breadth of God's redemptive plan and also in avoiding mistakes of the past. Mistakes, it must be said, that we can so easily fall into. As Paul spoke on last week, Paul the elder I'm talking about, Paul spoke on last week, Abraham, like us, was justified by faith. Yet we're aware as we read and study this epistle, there are those in and around the church at Galatia leading the people to lose sight of this fact, burdening them with a the gospel of works. So, Paul, Paul the Apostle, here puts these false claims to bed by proving the supremacy of the gospel over the law, celebrating the sonship the faith guarantees and expressing the blessing that flows from sonship. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to be working through Galatians chapter 3 from verse 15 and we'll be going down to chapter 4 and verse 7. And Paul speaks to those who may argue that as the law came well after God's covenant with Abraham, it supersedes what had taken place years before or at least it augments the life of faith. 430 years after God God confirms the covenant he makes with Abraham the law comes. So for anyone who may argue therefore the law supersedes God's covenant with Abraham Paul seeks to clarify the issue. Let's read from verse verse 15 Galatians chapter 3 verse 15 and we're just going to read 3 verses. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds it, adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So in these verses, Paul argues that the covenant made with Abraham was unconditional, relying on God's faithfulness. And we're aware that that the law was dependent on man's ability to keep it. And Paul's discussion starts with an example we're all familiar with. When an agreement is entered into, we can't easily walk away from it. And I guess in today's in today's um, language, that signature we have, that signature that we sign, when we sign a contract, an agreement, it's not something that we can easily walk away from. Most of us that buy houses enter into a mortgage. And we have to put a lot of signatures on that document. And I would often argue that if we actually read all the fine print in those documents, we might think twice about signing because that fine print is not for our (laughs) sakes. It's for the sake of the financial institution. We can't walk away from a mortgage whenever we feel like it. Some of us sign workplace agreements where we agree to abide by the conditions of employment. Even that mobile phone contract of yours, you can't just walk away from unless you're prepared to pay it out, unless it's finished. And today, even, even a pin is kind of like a binding contract. You know, you go to a shop and you buy something, and you type in your pin, you're basically saying I'm committed to buying this. Paul's making the point that, that just as the commitments we enter into cannot be easily revoked, this is even more so with God's covenant. A covenant with Abraham that cannot be set aside because it is unconditional in nature. Way back in Genesis chapter 12 and, and chapter 13 God talks to Abraham and he said I'm going to make you a great nation. And we come to Genesis chapter 15 and God says um, Abraham, this is what I'm going to do for you. And God ratifies the covenant through a ceremony that no one else was party to. Abraham was in a deep sleep and God ratifies the covenant that he makes with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. And Abraham's only real input in the discussion was, well, Yahweh, I don't even have a son. I don't have an heir. And God says, don't worry about that. I'll deal with that. And then we move over to Genesis chapter 22. And God seeks to test the faith of Abraham. And he says, this son, this son that I have given you, Isaac, I want you to go and offer a sacrifice. And Abraham, by faith, steps out, believing that God will provide. And Genesis chapter 22 and verse verse 16, this is God talking. God says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, There's nothing greater for God to swear by. He can't swear by his creation. God swears by himself, by his own character, by his own holiness. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand on the seashore. And listen to what he says now. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. It's clear that it's God doing the promising. God's covenant with Abraham was no way dependent on Abraham's worth but God's steadfast promise. And Paul goes on to give us three reasons in uh, in Galatians here. Verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. Ultimately, the promise that God made with Abraham, the, co- the covenant that God made with Abraham, sees its fulfillment in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ. It's unconditional because Christ is the ultimate fulfillment. Verse 17. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make its promises void. The covenant's unconditional. It was ratified by God. I swear by myself, says God. This is a commitment that I make to you, Abraham. Verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham. promise. If salvation comes through the law God's promised Messiah becomes immaterial and we know if we had time we could go right from the, the fall of man God is preparing to restore man through one man, Jesus Christ. Justification has always been based on faith we have that great chapter in Hebrews chapter 11 what do we commonly call Hebrews chapter 11 it's about the heroes of the it's about the heroes of the faith thank you it's the heroes of the faith many of the folk that are mentioned in Hebrews chapter uh, Hebrews chapter 11 were born under the curse of the law but these people understood that keeping the law was not going to meet the deepest need that they have they understood that keeping the law was not going to not going to meet the requirements of, ha- of living in faith, of living by faith. And the, the prophets and the saints in the Old Testament had a grip on this as well. Hosea 6.8 says, He has shown you, a man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness and walk humbly with your God. Hosea 6.6 six. 6. Isaiah's steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings, both Isaiah and Jeremiah deal with similar issues. We've just finished that wonderful series in the life of King David. One of the great Psalms that we consider precious as, as we read David's Psalm, Psalm 51. And David cries out to God for deliverance and forgiveness. And this is what he says, For you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Turn with me to Mark chapter 12. I'd just like to read a passage in Mark chapter 12. As we're turning there, In Matthew chapter 22, some of the scribes come to Jesus and they ask him a question, what's the greatest commandment? And we're pretty familiar with his response. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbour as yourself. And during his his discussion with the scribes in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus says this, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Mark chapter 22 and verse 12, and it's a parallel passage to to the one in Matthew. Verse 28, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and said, And seeing that, that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength and to love one neighbour as yourself, listen to what he said, is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Even the religious leaders in Jesus' day had glimpses of what it meant to have a true relationship with God, what it truly meant to follow the law, what the law was intended to accomplish. Well, as we turn back to Galatians chapter 3, Paul now uh, adopts this a kind of a question and answer formula to clarify any misunderstandings or false teachings about what is just declared. So in verse 19, he asks, what is the purpose of the law? If salvation has always been by faith, not works, if the Abrahamic covenant was fulfilled in Christ, what purpose does the law have? Verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgression. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies that more than one, but God is one. It was implemented because of transgression. Its purpose was to expose the sinful heart of man and his inability to please the King of kings and Lord of lords in and of himself, ultimately leading to the Messiah. The impossible demands of the law was designed to compel man to recognise God's holiness and our inability to meet that standard apart from his direct intervention. And it's this central theme the law brings to light we must never lose sight of. God is holy. We have sinned and fallen short of his righteous standard. Friends, it is really crucial that we see the difference between doing good things and being justified in God's eyes. You know, we, all, all of us here and probably most of the people in our community, not all, but most of the people in our community to like, desire to be good citizens. Most parents would like to be good parents. Most husbands and wives want to try and be good husbands and wives. Most children have a desire, certainly while they're young, to please their parents. Most of us we want to be good friends, to be good neighbours. As Paul mentioned last week, most of us would like to think that we could leave a real heritage after we're gone. And we can't deny that people do do good things. People who have no faith look after their family, they provide a roof over their heads and yet God is wishing to expose the motives of our heart, the motivations of our heart. What's going on in here? Sin cannot be overcome by good works because it's a matter of the heart, it's an issue of the heart. Jesus preaches that great sermon on the mount and the, the underlying message of the sermon of the mount was Jesus seeking to expose the heart of man, to expose the sin in man's heart. How many of you can say you've never been angry? I mean, you husbands and wives, how many of you could put your hand up and say you've never been angry with your spouse? I I don't put my hand up because I've never been angry with my spouse. It's just a sort of a... In fact, I've got a... I haven't asked my wife where I can say this, but I'm sure I'll get in trouble later, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> my wife uh, works at a Christian school, and last week she had to take devotions for the staff one morning, and she said um, <clears throat> one of the things she commented on is how over the years God has taught her to love her husband even when he frustrates her or she gets angry with him. And later on she said to me that evening, I I, I, I sort of finished that and I was a little bit worried the teachers think I don't really love you. (laughs) Jesus says the difference between anger and murder is a matter of degrees. In fact, the truth is the difference between anger and murder sometimes is what we might have beside us. If we've got a gun beside us and we're angry enough, those that we're angry with are in strife, possibly. Possibly. It's a matter of degrees, says Jesus. The difference between lust and adultery, Jesus says on that Sermon on the Mount, is a matter of degrees. Why? Because it starts in the heart. A love for money stems from a heart that is engrossed with it. All of the issues that man struggles with are issues of the heart. Let me ask, if your inner self was laid bare so that your friends and family could have a look in, have a poke around and see what you're you're really like, how comfortable would you be about that? Well, again, Paul asks a question in verse 21. If we agree that the law does not negate God's covenant with Abraham because it was unconditional, If we acknowledge the law's purpose is to expose man's sin, there is another issue that may arise. Does that mean the law is in conflict with God's promise? Is the law in opposition to salvation by faith? Is there one way of salvation in the Old Testament and another in the New? Can we choose which way to heaven? Are we able to mix the two as it suits us? Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise of faith in Christ might be given to all those who believe. Can we choose which way to heaven? Paul's answer is unambiguous and to the point, certainly not. And I think probably of all Paul's epistles, he's as forthright in Galatians as he is in in any of them. It's as if Paul understands this is a crucial issue that you guys need to understand. And I'm not going to mince words. Certainly not. If righteousness comes from the law, then the promise of faith in Christ becomes null and void. The term imprisoned that we read in verse 22 means to lock up securely on all sides without any means of escape. And we're held captive by the power of sin and only the promise of faith in Christ given to all those who believe can set us free. So Paul establishes the supremacy of salvation through faith in Christ over any attempt to find favour through keeping the law. And now we head to where Paul celebrates the sonship that faith guarantees to all those who believe. And he uses two seemingly opposing thoughts to describe God's law at work to prepare the way for Christ. Paul says it was both a prison and a guardian or a tutor. Let's read it from verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptised into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The law imprisons us all under the realization that God has a holy standard that we, each of us, all fall short of. While at the same time opening our hearts and minds to the true reality that only in Jesus Christ can we be put right before Him. Scripture reveals our inadequacies as it presents the law to us, but it doesn't leave us to wallow. God provides the solution. The law points to something better. And it's a state that Jew and Gentile alike find themselves in. God does not leave us without hope. If we cannot meet God according to our own standards and in our own way, He provides another way, that is Christ. Well, Paul goes on to say, as we move down, that justification through faith opens up three glorious truths. Let's look at them together. Verses 26 and 27. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptised into Christ have put on Christ. Sons of God. Baptised not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense, in union with Christ. And Paul describes the believer as having put on, put, in, put on Christ. God's spirit dwells within. God looks down and he no longer sees the issue of the heart. He sees what Christ has done on our behalf. He sees the righteousness of his son. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ. We're all on an equal footing as believers. Nathan, uh, when we started the book of Galatians, said that the gospel was counter-cultural and we see it in stark contrast here. Paul uses the, the greatest cultural distinction that existed at the time whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're a slave or a free man, whether you're male or female, there is no distinction in God's kingdom. Verse 28, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The promise that through Abraham, Christ would come. Now, it doesn't matter whether your name's John or Nathan or Shabu, It doesn't matter whether you're the Apostle Peter or or even the Apostle Paul. It doesn't matter if you are working behind the scenes silently here at Canterbury Gardens. We do, each and every one of us, stand justified before God based on what he has done for us. Every believer has an equal right to be called a child of God. For it's not through us, but him, that we will stand justified. Well, now we come to this final portion in our section today in chapter 4 where Paul continues where he left off calling the believer, believers heirs and he fleshes it out a little bit for us. Let's read it together. Chapter 4 and verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent His Spirit, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. First three verses in chapter 4, Paul uses a picture of an heir waiting to come of age before the inheritance would be transferred to him. And this was, of course, a common practice in both Jewish, Roman and Greek culture. We're aware of the significance of a male's bar mitzvah where the father would confess that before God he was no longer primarily responsible for his son. The male child becomes responsible before God for his actions, for who he was. And the Gentile Galatians well knew that both Roman and Greek culture had other kinds of of coming-of-age celebrations for their male sons. And what Paul was talking about was was familiar to the Galatians. Though the heir will receive the inheritance, he has no more right than a slave until that day arrives. And on a spiritual level, both the Jew and Gentile were also like children, enslaved by the elementary principles of the world. Now, this term, elementary principles, is probably best to be translated as referring to man's basic state he is enslaved by a religious system of works of a works mentality. And he is constrained by the limitations of his own sinfulness. Man is lost and has an underlying desire to solve that problem. And so all of the false religions in Jesus' day had one thing in common they were works based man trying to overcome the problem in his heart through his own effort. And it's no different today all religions that are not Christ-centered are works based any cult has one common denominator apart from denying the person and work of Christ they're works based it's a simple principle that, that that man seems to apply to so many areas of his life if you lack something if you work hard enough you've got a chance of overcoming And that's what all false religions rely on. It's this principle that 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 controls so much in our life. I mean we believe that if we work hard we'll we'll succeed at what we do, do we not? It's true in our work or our business. One of the first things discussions I have with young guys that start at work is that you get rewarded according to your effort. That's the principle. That's the way it works in our company. Anyone who has a small business knows how hard they have to work in order to have it it succeed. It requires a lot of dedication, a lot of work, a lot of time. It's also true if we want to succeed at sport. It's also true with our relationships, with our health. If we want to keep building our relationships, we have to work at it. If we want to stay healthy, it requires work on our behalf. And it's a principle that by and large is not a bad thing to be teaching our kids. You know, if you if you've got to be at school, you may as well make the most of it. You may as well do the best you can. The problem arises when we seek to do what is natural to us and transfer this principle that we, that, we, that we have in so many areas of our life and it seeps into our gospel message because it causes a subtle change in focus that leads us down a dangerous path. And it's here at this point, both as individuals as corporately and corporately, we need to take a moment to reflect are there any vestiges of these elementary principles hiding away somewhere? Is there any, t- any trace of a works mentality locked away that causes us, causes us to place unnecessary expectations or demands on ourselves or others? Have we in any way merged the principles of God's word with our own desires or preferences? In Jesus' words, have we fallen into the trap of teaching as doctrines the commandments of man? You know, there are millions millions of believers around the world that come together to worship the Lord each week. They don't all do church the way we do. It doesn't automatically mean that we're right and everyone else is wrong or that everyone else is right and we're wrong. Let me ask you, how easy it is for you to forgive others as God has forgiven you? I mean, we make mistakes, let's be honest, we sin at times and we come before our God and we ask him to forgive us. Are we then able to pass that on to others in our day-to-day walk or do we prefer to hold on to certain things to use it against them later on? We just had a had a video on parenting and it was fascinating to me because I was thinking about this challenge that we all have as parents. Do our children grow up with the false impression that what they do is more important than what they are on the inside? It's a real challenge for every parent because our children are small and we have to teach them when they're small, you just do what mum and dad say. You need to do that. We're your authority figures. But as our children grow up, how do we go about helping them to see that they are personally accountable to God, that he's not so concerned with what they do but what's going on in their hearts? What about when we come to church? Do we judge others according to their dress, their appearance, how messy their hair is? I know I need a haircut, my wife keeps telling me. What about their social standing? Whether they're outgoing or quiet, it's much easier to get to know someone who's outgoing and friendly, someone who's reserved or quiet. Do we persevere to get to know them? If people at church don't click with us, are we too quick to write them off? Or even if their church background is different to ours. you know, We have people here whose church background is different to what perhaps many of us would be used to. How do we respond to that? You know, as a church leadership, we've talked about the desire that we have for our church to be known as a place where God's grace is expressed in our dealings, both with each other and as we relate to the world around us. Mirroring God's grace ought to be a natural response ought to flow naturally out of the heart of someone who truly appreciates what God has done for them in Christ. And reflecting God's grace does not mean we shy away from correcting error or even exposing sin. Nor does it mean that we seek peace at the expense of biblical truth. But what it does mean is that in all our dealings, whether in or outside the church, we are consistently mindful of the mercy, patience, gentleness and goodness of our God towards us as we interact with others. Well, we read there in verses 4 and 5 that in the fullness of time, as the grand revelation of God's plan of salvation is unveiled, God sends his son, born under the law keeping the standard of the law to perfection, that he would redeem those who were held captive by it. And the result is threefold. And here Paul reaffirms what what he had um, shared with us at the end of chapter 3. The result is threefold. At the end of verse 5, we might receive adoption as sons. A child of God, that is what you are if you're a believer. A child of God, a son, a daughter of God with all the privileges of direct access to the Father just like a small child comes and sits on their dad's knee. Sometimes it's not always convenient but they don't care. They don't care what dad's doing, they just go and hop on his knee. You have direct access to the Father. He who created and sustains all things has that kind of relationship with you. As a child of God. Verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent his spirit into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God sends his spirit. He doesn't leave us alone. He dwells within through his spirit to correct, to guide, to, cur- to encourage and to grow us in service for him. Verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And I often think that this concept of being an heir is, certainly for me, it's something that I find hardest to grasp. The life we live is such a busy one. There's always so much to do. And I often think I don't fully appreciate the inheritance that I have gained through Christ. But one day I will. Those loved ones who have gone before us, they know. And someday we too will experience it because we are sons of God, adopted into his family by faith. You know, I doubt there are many people trying to force the law on us at Canterbury Gardens. And we know obviously it has no place in the Christian walk. Yet the issue Paul is dealing with is key to any gospel message. Salvation is by faith and nothing else should be added to it. The law was a plank in God's majestic plan to restore man to himself. It led the Jew with a desire to pursue a true relationship with Yahweh, to lament over his shortcomings and cry out to God for a deliverer, for deliverance. If this is you today, if you have spent all your life searching for God on your own terms, then what God wants to say is that you step out in faith and you accept what Christ has done for you on your behalf. Church, let us always be conscious of the subtle temptation to add something to the gospel message and consistently exhibit grace toward those both in and outside the church, remembering that he has poured out his grace upon us lavishly. Let's close in prayer. Our Father God, we are so privileged to be called your children and we recognise that we are your children based on what you have done for us in Christ. Oh, Father God, we do pray for those who may be searching at this time, that you would grant to them the wisdom, the ability to be able to know what is truth. May we as a church exhibit true grace as we deal with each other, as we support each other as we encourage each other, as we bear with each other's burdens and as we seek to be ambassadors for Christ in this world. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.